0: Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus said, Deeply moved again, Come to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Wow. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. Hey, good morning, Trinity. Happy Easter. Uh, I'm Ronnie, and um, I'm the pastor here at Trinity. Uh, Really thankful to be with you. Uh, If you're a visitor, um, thank you for joining us. Whether you are a believer or just someone exploring the faith, we hope that you feel welcome here. I hope it feels safe, safe to be here at Trinity. We, we want to take your uh, questions seriously without judgment. We don't want to be judgy like Barrett is. I'm kidding, Barrett. You're not judgy. <laughs> With that, <clears throat> let me just orient you all to um, what's going on here in this church. So every Sunday for 2,000 years all across the world, Christians meet on Sunday, every Sunday, to celebrate one thing that Jesus, who was crucified on a Roman cross, was resurrected from the dead three days later. And so we celebrate that reality every single Sunday. In fact, the Lord's Supper, each Sunday, right afterwards, we recite this thing called the Mysterium Fide. And if you don't speak Latin, it just means the mystery of the faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And so for roughly like 1,500 years, Christians have proclaimed that simple refrain. In fact, it kind of organizes our beliefs. We believe that the resurrection organizes our present lives. But one Sunday each year, we commemorate that resurrection in a special way. And that day is today. That's why we're wearing bright pastel colors. I don't know why we do that, but it's fun. So this morning, we're going to be thinking about it, and we're asking the question, why does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago? Maybe it happened, or maybe you're inclined to say maybe it didn't happen. But even if it did, even if it did, what relevance could it possibly have? If Christianity is true, if Jesus is who he says he is, then our credibility is tied to our ability to respond to these questions. And so we have to take it really seriously. In the Gospel of John, it's like a biography. The biography of John, Jesus refers to himself by saying, I am. And so he says, like, I am the light. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, the life. Uh, Today, we're going to see him, uh, we're going to study another one of those I am statements, which we just heard in our text. Jesus said, I am the resurrection, and the life. The people often ask the question, why was Jesus crucified? I mean, why was this nice man murdered? And the answer is, it's because he dared to speak like that. He aligned himself with God to such a degree that every hope, every dream, and longing put in the human heart by God could only be fulfilled by Jesus himself. The hope of the human race can only be realized, fulfilled in Christ. Clearly, people disagreed with him, and that's why they put him to death. But here are the key questions. Did Jesus have authority over death? Did the resurrection happen? Or did he die a fool saying silly things until he breathed his final breath? Obviously, Christians, we're not neutral about this, these questions. The resurrection of Christ is an event that communicates to God's people that we can trust him, that we can trust him. But it's not that simple, right? It's not that simple. If Jesus truly is God, then what's he like? If Jesus is God, why would we like him? I mean, why should we trust him? If you're like me, you don't necessarily like, doubt the existence of God, but you doubt his goodness towards you. Have you, ever, um, have you ever experienced something so sad in anguish? You cry out, where are you, God? Well, why are you letting this happen? Perhaps you read the news even this morning and sighed, God, where are you? Suffering is like really mysterious. I have actually spoken to numerous couples who are reticent to have children because they're afraid of the world in which their children would be, be born into. God, God, how could you let this kind of stuff happen? This is a, it's a really vulnerable and authentic question. But it is not a new question. In our text this morning, we heard about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. When Jesus arrived into Bethany... Lazarus was already dead. See, four days before, Lazarus was on the brink of death. And Mary and Martha, they knew that Jesus could help him. They sent a messenger for Jesus. And upon hearing about the grave sickness, Jesus does this really mysterious thing. He just stays where he's at. He doesn't doesn't rush off to Lazarus. And then when he finally arrives four days later, the sisters ask, Why did you let this happen? Lord, where where were you? Isn't that our question? Isn't that our question? Listen, the Lord hears, understands, and cares about our questions. And in fact, he offers us something better than answers. For 2,000 years of wars, plagues, death, sadness, sadness, Christians have been able to stand in the mystery of suffering and proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has risen. And why is that so comforting? Why has this given people hope in every single generation? Well, this morning, I want to evaluate this sacred story of Jesus and Lazarus. And I, wanna, I want the details to, um, to let us... Uh, or help us to understand God, our God. What is he like? What is God like? Look at Jesus. How how does God comfort us? Let's look at Jesus. By looking at Jesus, we're allowing our hearts to encounter incarnate hope, incarnate hope. So I'm gonna evaluate this text with four primary observations. Uh, They're in this order. The presence of Jesus... The promise of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the purpose of Jesus. The presence, promise, power, and purpose of Jesus. I did that on purpose with the Ps. It's a little, it's a little absurd, but here we are. Let's, let's begin with the presence of Jesus. So as I mentioned earlier, the story begins four days earlier when Jesus first re- receives the news. Instead of rushing back, he stays where he is to make sure, to ensure that Lazarus was completely dead. Uh, many commentators have noticed that um, in that time, the local rabbis, they promoted a kind of um, mythology that the souls of man lingered around the grave for about three days, hoping to re-enter the body. But once uh, the decomposition became evident, they believed that the souls would depart. So knowing their sort of local mythology of these rabbis, Jesus wanted there to be no doubt, none. So he says there, you see it in your bulletins, in verse 14, he says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Now I want you to notice there, he says in verse 15, let us go to him. Let us be with them. He doesn't doesn't just do a miracle at a distance, right? He's not a genie, right? He wants to be present with them. He moves towards the sorrow. He moves towards the sorrow. When Jesus arrives, he's approached first by Martha. Lord, if you had been there, verse 21, my brother would not have died. And then later, of course, Mary has Adam. She collapses at his feet. She's overcome by her sorrow, verse 32. It says, when Mary came to... To where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother wouldn't have died. Right? Now, I want you now to notice the response of Jesus. He doesn't doesn't get mad at them. He doesn't judge them for their lack of faith. Right? He doesn't try to guilt them into not trusting him. What does he do? He graciously allows his humanity to be infected by their grief. Right? In the words of the theologian, N.T. Wright, part of being human is allowing the grief of others to infect us. We carry the deep grief of one another. And if you don't, you're not fully human. So Jesus explodes in tears, right? John, the author... He's so moved by Jesus' actions. He, he tells us this three times. Look there, verse 33. It says that he's deeply moved. 35, the shortest verse in the whole Bible. Jesus wept. Verse 38, again, deeply moved. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Here, if you're not following the logic, here's why. Jesus knows what he's capable of. He knows that he's totally gonna bring Lazarus back from the dead, and yet he weeps, Right? He doesn't actually diminish their pain. He stops and he weeps with them, even though he knows what he's going to do. Listen, this is the God that you and I have. What is God like? This is what he's like. It's a God who enters into our sorrow. So why does John, the author, include all of these details? It's because he wants you to love him. That's why he wants you to love him. He wants you to be convinced The great theologian, John Stott, in his famous book, The Cross of Christ, he says, like, this is the most amazing thing. Let me read this excerpt from this book. This is John Stott speaking. I could never myself believe in God if it weren't for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, Tortured figure on the cross, nails through the hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. There's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. And then he finishes with this poem. I love poetry, so this is what he writes. He says, the other gods were strong, but thou wast, wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. This is your God. This is your God. He's present in your sorrows. Jesus does not offer us cold, calculated explanations to describe why they're suffering. What he offers us is his presence if you have ever suffered deeply, and you, I know you have, you know how important this is. When your eyes are tired of crying, what you need is not an answer. What you need is a friend to weep with. This is your God. He is present. Well, in addition to offering us his presence, he also offers us a promise, a promise. Let's get back into it. As the story unfolds, Jesus is making his intentions known, what he's going to do with Lazarus. But it's important for you to note that his his eyes are actually on a bigger horizon. He looks well beyond the immediate suffering that we see in the story. And why do I say that? Well, in the story, when Martha first approaches Jesus, she expresses her sadness and, and, and then he responds with a promise. Look what it says in, in verse 23. Jesus said to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. Now, listen, Martha, the Jew, she had some basic understanding of a general resurrection that the Jews taught. But Jesus, you guys, was offering something far more profound, far deeper. Look there in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, the faith of Martha, it's still kind of in seed form here. And when they approach the tomb, Martha, you know, she she confesses a real concern. Look, verse 39. He says, "Take away the stone." Martha, the, the, dead, the sister of the dead man—I mean, they're cl- like John's clarifying here—said to him, "Lord, but by this time there will be an odor, right? I mean, from the decomposition, for he has been dead four days." So, what does Jesus do? He repeats the essence of that same promise, verse forty. He says to her, "Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God?" That's a weird thing to say, right? Why is this so important? Why is Jesus offering a promise of something that is drastically more comprehensive than simply healing Lazarus? It's because Jesus knows. Listen, you guys. It's because Jesus knows that life is hard. See, although Jesus is going to resolve this one crisis, more crises will still come. There would be many more days of tears after this one. And what hope will they have on that day? Because Jesus is not going to show up every time they have a problem, right? And where do they find the resources to hope in the future? It's not, listen, it's not with the healing of Lazarus. It's found in the promise that we have in Jesus, in himself. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. D. A. Carson he notes that Jesus is diverting Martha's focus uh, and, and uh, focus on her faith in a sort of abstract. It's kind of like an abstract sense, a generic faith in God, right? She she kind of believes in God, right? And and he's moving it to this personalized belief in Him, who alone gives eternal life. See, ordinary mortal life ebbs away. But the life that Jesus is offering and giving never ends. And it's in that sense that whoever lives and believes in Jesus will never die. So Jesus does not point to a path. He doesn't point uh, to a way to a resurrection. He says he is the resurrection and the life. You'll see that? Resting on Christ's promise is like a sailor or a mariner looking at the horizon in order not to become seasick when the storms of life have overtaken the ship. See, because Jesus is not offering us a personal miracle to every crisis we have. And churches that preach like that need to shut their doors. That's not what's going on here. What Jesus is offering us is a horizon a, a promise, a promise that is steady enough that it can manage our despair and increase our hope even while we endure the storms of this life. Jesus, just, as, um, just as Jesus did for Mary and Martha, Jesus is teaching us through this story to unite ourselves to Christ who lifts our eyes to a horizon, to a promise bigger than this moment. He offers promises, not answers to all of our why questions. In fact, he offers himself. Who is your God? What's he like? This is what he's like. Our third observation in this text is that Jesus displays his power. So we looked at his presence and his promise, now his power. In this sacred story, uh, the author, John, he's extremely uh, careful to to, to depict Jesus in this really, uh, with a really sensitive portrait. Jesus is tender. He weeps. He allows um, the grief of his loved ones to affect him. He's, He's remarkably vulnerable here in this chapter. But what's important for all of us to understand is that the tenderness of Jesus in no way, in no way diminishes his sheer authority. Um, our culture's notions of power and authority are extremely are extremely distorted. Uh, the authority that Jesus wields should not be understood in our cultures. Is this me, Micah? I'm sorry, I don't know what I'm doing here. All right, here we go. Uh, the way that our culture thinks about uh, power is like is all really about getting your way, right? Just being a dictator. His power. And authority are woven into his his words' sheer ability to realize the the will of God. Let me explain how this works. Think about this for a second. In the very beginning of time, all right, we're talking Genesis language, all right? Nothing existed except for God, God himself. So when God wanted to make something and he wanted to do it out of nothing, what did he do? He spoke. He uttered his will in in words, in the form of words. So with words, the entire cosmos, the creation, came into existence. So words are the creative instrument of God to incarnate, to bring about his will. So for God, this, this isn't a struggle. This isn't like a labor, right? It is sheer power and authority. Let me switch microphones. I think the battery's dying. How about this? No, it's not me. All right, here we go. Um, where was I? Okay, so, so God bringing about his will from, from nothing to something. It's not hard for him, right? It's sheer power and authority. So in our passage, Jesus, just like his heavenly father, spoke words that could materialize the will of God. And so what does he say? Verse 43, Lazarus, come out. literally here outside right now this is a shout of sheer authority In just about every commentary I read I read preparing for this they cited a remark that was made by this guy named Basil the great this is an old guy from the fourth century but he, he says he says if Jesus would not have specified the name Lazarus All the dead ever would have come out of the grave, right? I mean, this is like incredible power, right? And this is significant because Jesus does not simply offer us his emotions. He's not, Jesus isn't simply offering us his sympathy. He comes to us with the power to act, This idea was so burned into the collective imagination and mind of the early church that the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1 would say this. He'd say, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created, heaven, earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He made the creation, and therefore it answers to him. Right. So when Jesus calls Lazarus from the grave... He rises. So Jesus does not simply offer us his tears. He does not leave us in our sorrow. He exercises his power on our behalf, not to dominate, but to help us. His off, his offer, he offers his power in service to our healing, right? Power used for healing. He uses it to heal, not to dominate. And so we ask, what is God like? This is what he's like. It's different. All right. So I began the sermon by asking a very real and honest question that has an echo in this story. God, where are you? Where are you? When we're honest, we have a difficult time, a difficult time trusting God. We have questions. We've got questions. What is God like? How does he comfort us? Why should I love him? And so we, we, we humbly study this text to see if we might have an encounter with a God who says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so far in our text, we consider Jesus who offers us his presence, his promise, and his power. But there is one final observation, and I'll end it like this. Jesus displays his purpose, his purpose in this story. And how so? Well, there's this theme that emerges So Jesus delays his arrival to Bethany to make sure Lazarus is totally dead. Was Jesus being mean? No, he was motivated by love. When a person who can heal powerfully restrains, even for a moment, we've got to pay attention. Why? There are important purposes that are being revealed. So in the words of D.A. Carson, uh, the delay is for the good of all who are concerned, and if this isn't clear, Jesus makes it really explicit. Look there in verse 41 and 42 when he prays. It says, so they took the stone away. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So when he prayed, he clarified that it was for the benefit of everyone else. Jesus helping us out letting us listen in. Jesus wanted every single person to believe. And the goal was not to believe in a doctrine, right? That's not the goal. The resurrection church is a person. Jesus is the resurrection. The purposes of Jesus are well beyond bringing temporal healing to a friend. Did you hear that? It's really important you get that. It is well beyond that. He is giving everyone, all of us, a taste of eternity. He does not want to reverse death for one single person. He wants to make death untrue. He wants to conquer death. He wants to put death to death, vanquish it, reverse it. Where do I get this idea? Well, there's this one really unique detail in this verse that viscerally depicts Jesus' purposes. In verses 33 and 38, the text says that Jesus was deeply moved. Now, your translators have a really tough time with the original Greek because that word is super unique. The word is usually that word is usually applied to animals, like describing the snorting of a war horse that's about to go into battle. All right? so Jesus is weeping, but he is angry. I mean, Jesus is angry. Jesus is angry at the temporary power of death. He hates it. He wants to make war against it. But again, Jesus doesn't simply just offer us his emotions. He offers a down payment to this promise. And so on this one occasion, Jesus subverts death. He even reverses it. And instead of giving an explanation as to why God was not there, He takes our gaze from past suffering, and he says, look forward. Jesus pulls the future reality of resurrection into our present. He intertwines it with the present. The future resurrection explodes into our present. Everyone who believes in Jesus will never experience eternal death. And this real event that we're seeing in John 11 then becomes a kind of living parable, a a living metaphor of what Jesus intends to do with the entire world. Jesus, the resurrection and the life, will make all sadness untrue. He will make all things new. This is your God. That's, That's the whole story of the Bible. God, where are you? God, who are you? God, should I love you? To our most vulnerable questions, God doesn't just shout out answers from the, from the clouds. He sends Jesus to be present with us, to offer us promises, to show us his power, and to display his ultimate purposes The resurrection of Lazarus allows us to reinterpret our present lives. This present life is filled with suffering and sadness and disappointment and injustice. And when you and I cry out, God, where are you? What we are really saying is this. Listen to me, if you've checked out. When you ask, God, where were you? You know what you're really saying? God, please don't let this terrible thing have the last word. Make it untrue. Make it untrue. God, remind us that you will have the final word. Our doubts and our questions and our skepticism are really just hidden protests that desperately desire that the resurrection is true. We're mad, we're not sure if it's true, and we're mad about it. We want all sad things to be untrue, and you should. The resurrection of Lazarus was hopeful, but see, Lazarus wouldn't endure. Lazarus would still one day have to die. But his temporary revivification, his resurrection points to Christ's eternal resurrection. And although we still need to live in this present mystery of suffering, we will proclaim together the mystery of the faith. The Christian faith is tied to this one idea. Christ has died, but Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Let me just end the sermon repeating the words of Martha. Verse 26. It says, And everyone who, believe, who lives and believes in me shall never die, to which Jesus asks, Martha and you, do you believe this? You should at least want it to be true. Even if you struggle with doubt today, if you could understand what I'm saying, you would want it to be true. Amen.